go to next slide. Oh yeah, I can do that. I can do that. Okay. We begin this morning into a passage that I think may be the hardest in this whole three chapter section. Um, we've already said a lot of hard things in Romans 9. And there's an air and a spirit about a group of people. And I, I want to say that I appreciate the spirit that's here. And I'm not talking about the Holy Spirit, even though He is here. But I really believe that you guys are engaging these texts. I don't think you have picked up stones to throw at me yet. Give um, you time, maybe today. Um, but this is what I'm really wrestling with <clears throat> as we venture through, especially Romans 9. <coughs> and the question that I want to ask you this morning is what I've been wrestling with. How big is your grace? How, and it, it's, a, it's a really a, a redundant, um, I would say, idiotic question to ask, but how sovereign is your God? <laughs> and we talked some last week about God being sovereign over this and sovereign over that, <clears throat> and us being excited about that, and then the question about whether he's sovereign over salvation or not. And then being quick to say, wait a minute, God, that's not fair, if you'll remember last week. And we wrestle with that. I know, I know I wrestle with it. I hope you wrestle with it. Don't just shut the door one way or to it. But I'm afraid sometimes we try to get a little bully-ish with God and tell him how he can do things, how he should do things, how he has to do things especially regarding salvation. We have an idea in our heads of what God is like, and we have a thought in our minds about the process that God should use, and that's most of the time biblically based, what we know in Scripture. But let me ask you from a show of hands, and I won't take too long here, how many of you all grew up in a church where you heard messages from Romans 9? I didn't. And I know why you didn't. Because it's hard. And it's really hard to bring a bully attitude toward God into Romans 9. Because what happens when you step up as the bully and get punched in the mouth yourself? Anybody ever been bullied? Anybody ever had a bully just... And then one day you're like, yeah, I've had enough. And you... Pop them in the mouth. In Christian love. Let me share some of Christian knuckles with you. <clears throat> a lot of times when you punch the bully in the mouth, the bully leaves you alone. And I'm not advocating for that, but I'm not shy away from it either. But what happens when we try to bully God and he puts us in our place? Let me set the stage for you. I'm <clears throat> going to play a short video. How many of you saw the first Avengers movie? So this won't be new to most of you. Let me set the stage for you, for those of you who haven't seen this. If you're familiar with Norse mythology at all, <coughs> the world's going on here this morning. The Avengers and Norse mythology. But 
Um, one of the characters in the first Avengers movie is, is Loki, L-O-K-I. And Loki is the Norse god of mischief and anarchy. And in the movie, the Avengers, he has come to Earth to take hold of a weapon to have a place where he can rule because he can't rule in his homeland of Asgard because his brother Thor, who is the god of thunder, has proven himself worthy of the throne. <clears throat> so Loki wants a throne. And Loki is a demigod. He's not a god. He lives for a long time, but he's not immortal. <clears throat> so he comes to Earth and he wants to exert his power. and He wants to show these mere mortals how powerful he is. And he brings this army with them and they're having this great big fight at the end of it in New York City. And the Avengers are fighting them and all this stuff. And it's mass chaos and it's just what Loki wants. And he's going to set up his throne in the midst of this. But we run into a problem if we're Loki. It's a big green guy called the Hulk. And um, I just want to play this clip for you because this is right near the end and Loki feels like he's getting what he wants and something happens. So can we roll that from up? You are all of you beneath me. I am a god, you dull creature, and I will not be bullied by Now, this is what I want you to think about as you saw that clip. I think sometimes we bust into God's presence and we proclaim our deity. And we proclaim to you, God, what you should do and what you should not do and what you can do and what you cannot do. And then we run up against a passage like Romans 9, 19-24. And I think we are the ones laying there at the end going, and God doesn't look at us and say, Peter's God. But he does look at our theology sometimes and say, I'm just not big enough in your theology. How big is your God? How sovereign is your God? I think we'll see today. Would you stand with me as we read Romans 9, 19, 24? <clears throat> you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. God, I pray that you would give us a big vision of who you are today. And I pray that we would not try to dictate to you what we expect or what we want or what we desire, or what we think the plan of salvation should be based around our traditions and based around what we've grown up with, based upon a bully pulpit that has been forced upon us for most of our lives. 
God, I pray that we would see you as glorious, as sovereign, as big, and as good. Help us, Holy Spirit, to understand this word and ask it in Jesus' name. Be How big is your God? How sovereign is your God? It's a tough question, guys. We're going to start in verse 19. And let me just say, as I've wrestled through this text, I've probably struggled with this passage more than I have any, um, any that we've come up against in the book of Romans, and we've had some doobies. Um, but that doesn't mean it's bad. It just means that we've got to wrestle some. So let's wrestle. <clears throat> you will say to me then, in verse 19, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Now, this is coming out of verse 18, where we saw, So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And that's a pretty scandalous statement, isn't it? And Paul, who's playing the side of the other side of the argument here, he's, he answers a question that he knows somebody's asking in their minds. And he says, you will say to me then. So he's addressing what he assumes would be a statement from someone who has an issue with what he's saying. Now let me, again, you don't have to put up your hand, but have you had issues with anything Paul said? Yeah. Absolutely. If, if you haven't, you haven't been listening. I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. He has said some pretty blatantly hard things. And he knows that. And he addresses that. And he says, you will say to me then. Well, if you've had issues with anything that Paul has said up to this point, this word's for you. And if I'm truthful, I wrestle with these concepts and this word is for me too. And what does this someone say? Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Now, that's, in my mind, a very natural question, right? If God shows mercy to whomever he wills and hardens whomever he will, why would he find fault in people that he had hardened? Now, going back to the beginning of the verse, Paul said, you will say to me then. And I want to ask you, can you maybe put yourself in the you there now? Maybe you will say to Paul then. Or... Maybe you would say to God then, well, why would God find fault in anyone if he was the one who hardened them? Like Pharaoh. If God hardened Pharaoh, like we saw last week, and then Pharaoh sinned against God by not letting the Israelites go, why would God punish Pharaoh for sinning after he was hardened to be a sinner and sinners sin by doing what God said he would do after God hardened them. Now, twist that pretzel up. And my question is, is there injustice in God? Well, the answer that we saw last week was by no means. And it's an imperative. No, it, may, it can never possibly come into being. But if we're honest with ourselves and with each other in the room this morning, 
And if we're honest with God, don't we all feel that here? Doesn't it seem unjust to punish someone, and not just punish someone, but punish someone in eternal fiery hell who is simply doing what anyone would do if there was an omnipotent God who set his omniscient will to harden them and do what would seemingly lead them to sin, especially in light of the end of the verse, which asks the perfect partner question, the first question, for who can resist his will? And to top it all off, wouldn't that make God the author of evil? Now these are big, hard, make your brain explode type of questions. And they have to be addressed. Let me ask you a, a, the same question in a different way. And I, I've asked this before. Was God surprised when Adam and Eve sinned? Did he say, oops, plan B, Jesus couple thousand years, we're going to send you down there. They did it. They did it. Ah, can't believe they did it. No. We saw several messages ago that Jesus was the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. We saw that he had foreknown us in love before the foundation of the world. So, the Garden of Eden didn't change God's plan it set God's plan in motion. And God's plan involved what? <coughs> sin. So is God the author of sin? No, he's not. You're going, but wait a second. How can that be? If he, if he had a plan that involved sin, wouldn't he be the author of sin? And some people would condense it down and say, well, he knew what was going to happen. How big is your God? Could God orchestrate a program that involves sin without being the author of sin? And listen, you're going to get some brain cramps this morning. He can, because he's God. And we'll address some of this as we go along. And these questions have to be addressed. They need answers. Listen, why? Why do they need answers? If we are going to know God, if we are going to believe God, and if we are going to worship God properly. So how does Paul address this very naturally occurring question? Let's press on to verse 20. The question that he asks next is, to these questions that were asked, but who are you, old man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? I don't know about you, but that's not the answer I was looking for for those questions. Why then does he still find fault for who can resist his will? When we just looked at what we would normally, humanly ask in response to God doing something we don't understand. The Holy Spirit, through Paul, starts the next sentence with a but. And that's not a good sign. You will say then, but. You will ask why, but. You will question God's methods and plans, but. You may think you know better than God, but. Please, listen 
to what I'm about to say. And while it may be an overstatement or be so obvious that it loses its luster and power to us, it still has to be said. You are not God. Amen. You're not even a God. Logan. And as such, there are higher ways than yours. We've pointed out a few times in our trek through Romans that Paul ends this section of chapters 9, 10, and 11 with an exuberant expression in Romans 11, 33 through 36, which says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Now listen, that all things thing. And we loved all things in Romans 8, didn't we? Because he's causing all things to work together for our good. But here in Romans 11, for from him and through him and to him are all things. In this passage, Paul is saying that God's ways are inscrutable, which means that they are beyond finding out, which is the way the King James translates it. God's ways are different than ours. His work that he is doing is to conform us to his image and to his ways. And we will get there one day, but guess what? We ain't there yet. Two other familiar passages speak to this. The first is Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, which says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Another passage is one that Don read this morning in Psalm 50. Psalm 50, 21. I love this one. Where God says to the wicked, These things you have done, and I have been silent. Here you go. You thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. And that statement, you thought that I was one like yourself. Other translations say, you thought that I was just one. And guess what, church? He ain't just like us. He's higher. He's bigger. He's stronger. He's smarter. He's holy. He's good. He's compassionate. And he's getting us there, but we ain't there yet. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are beyond our finding out. And we think he's just like us, but he is not. He is higher, wiser, greater, more powerful. And he is perfect in all that he does. And we are not. Amen. So it's important that we both understand that and appropriate it into our hearts and minds as we progress through both this passage and our lives. So back to the statement that starts with but in verse 20, in Romans 9, 20. 
But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? So you may ask if there's injustice in God, or ask why does he still find fault since no one can resist his will, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? That is literally translated as, on the contrary, O man, who are you to talk back to God? Now, I like the on the contrary part. He's basically saying, you may think you have a good point or argument, but just the opposite is true. And then he drops the bomb after that. Can you put 920 up there? It's nice. Who are you, O oh man, to talk back to God? On the contrary, O oh man, who are you to talk back to God? The clear contrast here is between man and God. We would exalt ourselves and play the Hulk in this man-God relationship. We just want to strut to God's presence and explain to Him the way it has to be with God around and make sure he stays true to our expectations or our perceptions of him. But here, Paul says, who are you, O man, to even answer back to God? You don't have the right and you don't have the might to talk back to God. You don't. Yes, now listen. Let me, let me set this forward as we progress here. Yes, he loves us as his children. But we do not have the right to talk back to him. Parents, can I get an amen here? Mm -hmm. We love our kids. We want the best for them. And we will give sacrificially to make sure they get what they need and sometimes what they want. But when we have their best interest in mind and we have set a course in a particular way and they want to buck that direction and talk back to us, How's that go usually? <coughs> Here, God is clearly in the right. God is in control, having his perfect way, and who are we, as his children even, to talk back to him, to accuse him? And be assured, those questions in verse 19 are surely accusatory in their tone. Why does he still find fault? Can you hear it? Who can resist his will? They are accusing God of being unfair or unjust. Saying, in essence, it's not right for God to punish sinners who are sinners because he made them sinners and hardened them. They couldn't resist him, so why does he still find fault? And let me just say plainly and simply, that is not our place. It's not our right. Who are you, puny man, to talk back to God. And then the word drives it home even harder when it says, Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Now think of the absurdity of this. We have a natural tendency to project humanness to animals and plants and things. And we kind of talk for them. You ever been in the car and like you're 16 years old? Let me give you a story. I had a 1990 white Ford Probe. It was a beautiful machine. Beautiful. But it wasn't real fast. Four cylinders. 
driving up Thames Mountain, I had, uh, for the first time, picked up my friend and my cousin and was taking him to school. We got to a straight stretch, and we were behind this slow-moving car. When you're 16, everybody's slow-moving, right? So I'm in my 1994 Probe. I'm going to pass this joker on the first straight stretch that I get. So we come up on here, I'm going to slingshot past him, and then I step on the gas, and all four cylinders are just whee! Well, I'm not getting by real fast. And all of a sudden, there's a car coming up on either side. And we are, I'm 16, so I've got to prove my manhood and get past this car. So I'm stepping on the gas. My husband says, step on it! I'm like, oh, I'm stepping on it! And I looked, and the needle was up on the red. The RPMs were up as those as red lines. And I could just imagine the car saying, I'm trying, I'm trying. I'm giving it all I've got. Well, we got by it. The guy actually slowed. <laughs> well, we have a tendency to kind of talk for our machines, don't we? I can just hear that car saying with the needle on the red line, I'm trying, I'm trying. But what did my car actually say? Nothing. Cars don't talk, y'all. But I talked for it. So think of the absurdity of what's going on here. Here in the passage, the question is asked, will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? But guess what? Things that are molded, they don't talk. And that's what's being conveyed here. Will what is molded say to its molder? And the answer is no. It will not. Because it cannot. It is impossible. And that's exactly what Paul is trying to communicate here. Ultimately, it is impossible for us, either as saints or sinners, to speak to how God does what he does. His ways are past finding out. We truthfully cannot say to our molder, why have you made me like this? Or why have you constructed a plan like this? Why do you save people like this? We just can't. Because even if he found it necessary to answer our question that we can't possibly ask, we wouldn't be able to comprehend his answer. It would fry our circuits. Our tiny, puny minds, as beautiful and as made in the image of God as they are, <coughs> simply cannot contain his perfect plan in this it's too much for us. And we cannot even fathom the truth of a perfect God. We can say it with our lips, but really, what is perfection? We don't know anything perfect. Nothing. Somebody draw me a perfect circle. You can't do it. You say, well, I, we can get things square and plumb, right? He's like, some people can. <laughs> We don't know perfection in this world. We're broken, we're scarred, we're skewed, we're bent. And we cannot fathom perfection. You don't get it? In the midst of showing mercy and compassion, and in the midst of him hardening and doing it all according to his perfect will, God is showing perfection to us. 
Now listen, I'm not suggesting that we can never question God. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying it is impossible for us to accuse him of injustice or rightfully question his perfect plan. It's absurd. The old, if I was God, I wouldn't do it that way. Or the familiar, well, I don't think God would do that. They're just completely invalidated. Because we aren't God, we never will be God, nor could we ever be God, and we simply cannot begin to fathom the depth and perfection of his ways and his will. So, if a pardoned saint or a condemned sinner would start to think about questioning God, about why they are in the state that they were in, the answer is, just don't. Pottery can't, and pottery don't. Talk and talk. So it is with us and God. Next verse. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? And just in case that last verse didn't make you, okay, I got it. And this one shuts the door completely. If there's any doubt about whether or not Paul is saying God can do what God wants with who he wants, how he wants, this verse comes in with a clear message. A potter can make a cup for a king to drink from or a latrine for a pauper to relieve himself in. And the clay has no say. And the clay has no say. The clay does what the potter made it to do. And ultimately, it's the potter who decides what clay is used to make. It's the potter's right. You see the connection? The vessel can't question what it is or how it was made. It can't. And it's the potter's right to decide what he's making with the clay that he picks up. He purchased it. And ultimately, in this analogy, he made the clay. So God has the right to make what he wants with every creation, including human life, and we have no right nor really any ability to question rightly what he has done or why he has done it. This verse says it's his right to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. It's the potter's right, period. It's hard to swallow, y'all. God, you have no right. Actually, yes, I do. And he's not going to jump on you and throw you around like the whole big book. But he is going to put you in the place. God, you don't have the right to do that. Yes, son, I do. Yes, I do. But why? Why is the question? And the answer to the why question is really, really hard to swallow. Well, that's what the end of the passage dives into. Look at verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience because of wrath prepared for Not just what if, but what if God? 
And when the question is, what if God, then we need to step up and take notice and understand God's self-sufficiency, God's power, and God's choice. And instead of accusing God, this is instead looking at God in wonder and asking, what if God? And then the next phrase can make us feel a little queasy. But what if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power? Wow. If what has been said before wasn't enough to tell us to watch what we say, or be more specific, if what we've seen to this point doesn't just tell us to shut up in our accusations, then this really might drive that final nail into our coffin. Listen, folks, we mentioned last week that we need to worship God for hardening as much as for showing mercy. And here, we need to worship a God who not only shows his wrath and power, but he actually desires to show his wrath and make known his power. And we need to worship a God who shows his wrath as much as a God who shows his power. <coughs> the word desires means to have a mind to do and to take pleasure to do. God has a mind and takes pleasure in showing his wrath. God takes pleasure in making known his power. Why does he do that? We'll see that in a minute. Stick around for that. That's the right hook of the whole passage. But for now, we're going to ask what, what he does to show his wrath and to make known his power. And what he does do, or what has he done, he has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Now swallow that down. In order to show his wrath and make known his power, God has endured with much patience. He's put up with something, or someone in this case, with much patience. He has put up with the sinful acts of hardened hearts in people who are what? Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Now, if God is the potter and he has the right to make people any way he wants to, and he chooses to make vessels for dishonorable use, and he hardens them, which in effect leads to their sins, and God hates sin, this verse paints the picture that God endures patiently their sins so that he can show his wrath and make known his power through their disobedience. And he made them for that purpose. How big is your God? How nice is your God? He's the potter, and he has the right to move the clay what he wants. And in this verse, he desired to show his wrath and to make known his power. And since he desired to do that, he has endured with, with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. He made ramps. Anybody like the smell of ramps? Usually even people that like to eat ramps don't like the smell of ramps. So they endure the smell so that they can enjoy the taste. 
Does God like sin? No, he hates sin. But he is enduring the sin so that he can do what he desires. And what he desires to do is to show his wrath and make them his power as he punishes sinful people. But why? Why would he do that? Why does God do what God does, period? Hopefully you know the answer to that question by now. Verse 23. In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Now when you see, when you see in order to, that's a purpose clause. In order to do what? Not a sand clause, a purpose clause. In order to. In order to do what? In order to make known the what? The riches of his glory. What is God's purpose? God's glory is God's purpose. If we've seen nothing else in chapter 9 so far, we have surely seen that. But now we have to ask, who is he showing his mercy? No, actually, the verse says, who is he showing the riches of his glory to? Who is God showing the riches of his glory for? For vessels of mercy. Now that may not mean a whole lot to you right now, but stick around. God is showing the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. We've seen that he created vessels of wrath and dishonor, but here we see a different vessel, one made for mercy, which would be the vessels for honorable use from earlier. And God is doing what he is doing with the vessels of wrath in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of honor. God's ultimate purpose is his glory, and he wants to show that glory not to, but for the vessels of mercy. And four is the most important word in this passage. In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. The riches of God's glory are for these vessels of mercy, which is who? His children. Those whom he has adopted. Those whom he chose. Those whom he, the potter, fashioned for honorable use. His glory is for them. And oh my. We sang this morning, glory in the highest. Glory in the highest. To you, Lord. And here he says, that glory which is to me is for you. vessels for dishonorable use to show his wrath and his power and endured their rebellion against him so that he might magnify and multiply the riches of his glory for us. Listen church, when the final judgment comes, when God deals out retribution against those who have sinned against him, we will give him glory for his wrath and his power and will stand in awe that we were chosen for mercy. 
mercy. We will stand in awe that we were chosen for honor. That we were chosen for his glories and sake. And this is breathed in the wonder you are a believer, if you are God's child, if he adopted you, if he fashioned you into a vessel for honorable use because of his grace, not because of anything that you have done, whether good or evil, if he did that out of sheer grace, you are not destined for wrath, but you are destined for glory. And when sinners are punished, God will be seen as even more glorious for showing mercy and grace to us. Not in a self-exalting way. Look at me, I'm better than those jokers who are going to hell. No, that's not what happened. It's what they Why would you Why would you choose me? that I could have been a vessel of wrath and dishonor, but I am instead a vessel of mercy and honor by God's doing, makes me in awe of His grace. Makes me awe at His working, His power, and His glory. And I am the recipient of the riches of that glory when I truly deserve to receive that makes me, as we say, fall on my knees. And the end of the verse says that God prepared us beforehand for glory. And again, that's God's thing. Before anything we did, prepared beforehand for glory by God's gift. Now the last verse for today, verse 20. Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And this verse really needs to be read in connection with what we've already seen. So let me read this verse with verses 22 and 23 so you can kind of gather them together. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us? he is called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Even us, whom he has called. To make him the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he has called. Even us. Marvelous. And why are we who we are? Even us. Because he called us. Even us whom he has called. And this again points back to God as the one 
who has made all this happen. His calling brings us into his kingdom to receive the riches of his glory, even us whom he has called. And then at the end of the verse, we'll remind that Paul is addressing his Jewish brothers and how they're not the sole recipients of God's grace. He says, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. God's vessels of honor are those whom he has called from Jewish roots and Gentile roots. It's not about being an Israelite by birth, but a child of God by God's calling and God's fashioning and doing. And listen, here's the good news. And God's call is to the ends of the earth until the end of time. Look at Revelation 7, 9 and 10. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying with a loud voice. That's not fair, God! Why do you still find fault, God? Because who can resist your will, God? And crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. God's calling will reach every nation, every tribe, and every people, and every language. Period. That will happen. It's written in the book because God got it done. His calling is for Jews and Gentiles. He has prepared vessels for honorable use all around the world. He has done it. And it will be done. And I know you're probably thinking, well, you haven't really answered many questions here You've probably caused more questions than you've answered the question. Stay with us. We've got two and a quarter more chapters to wrestle with this still. But we've got to apply what we've looked at today, right? So first point of application. We have to address the fact that God has called and will call his people from every nation, tribe, people, and language. And you know what that should do for us as his people? It should absolutely destroy any twinge or any impulse of racism. You got something against somebody because their skin is a different color? Or because they came from a culture different than you're used to? I say in the name of Jesus and in the authority of God, kill that now. God has over 7 billion people in the world today made in His image and He is calling people from all over the world to be His children. Newsflash, Jesus wasn't white. <laughs> Just might need to point that out, especially during Christmas time with all these white baby Jesuses sitting in people's front yards. Baby Jesus meek and white? No. <clears throat> Regardless, if you are harboring racial sin in your heart, kill it. By the power of God's Holy Spirit, kill the sin of racism, especially knowing God didn't call you because of your skin color or your cultural heritage. No racism in God's church, period. It is sin. Those little jokes that you think are so funny are sin. 
and you are spitting in God's face. Those snide comments about people of a different race or color or religion? Sin. Guilt. No racism in God's church. You have a hard time worshiping with every tribe, nation, tongue, language. You've got racism in your heart, and God's going to get it out of you. Second point of application. Listen to me. In light of this passage today, we should be able to worship God for grace. Completely free, unmerited favor, especially facing the thought that he could have prepared you beforehand for wrath. Worship the God of wrath, knowing that his grace is multiplied in the light of his wrath. How much more glorious is grace in contrast to wrath? Jesus said to the Pharisee, He who has been forgiven much loves much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. How much have you been forgiven for? Your whole life. Prior to conversion, was rebellion toward God. And he issued forth a calling that called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He breathed life into your dead body, Ephesians 2 says. And then it says that he's crafting us and shaping us into the image of Christ. You did nothing to deserve that, you were dead. And you were bound for hell, and God reached down and plucked you from the fire. You didn't figure it out one day. You didn't wake up and say, yeah, I figured God's all right. I'll give him a chance. That didn't happen. You were not a morally neutral agent who one day said, okay, I'm going to go to God's side. You were bound for hell, and God plucked you out of hell. By his grace. And in light of the punishment that should be due to you, we should be able to look at grace and be even more amazed than we are. This passage clearly puts wrath and mercy in comparison. And when one day I stand before the throne and he says, Come ye, blessed of my Father, enter into the rest, into the kingdom that was prepared before the foundation of the world for you by my Father. And when I look at the wrath that's being displayed in hell, the contrast is going to be your worship. And it should be now. Grace is free. Grace is God's doing. Worship Him for grace, especially in light of His wrath. Third point of application. Kill racism is one. The second one is worship the Lord for grace. Especially in light of his wrath. Point three. I want you today, church, to know the bigness of God. The otherness of God. He is not a puny God that you can strut into his presence and make him do what you want. That is absurd. He is not sitting on his throne so that you can come and make your petitions of accusation against him. 
Now, do we come confidently and boldly to the throne of grace to receive grace in time of trouble? Yes, we do. Because of grace. But we in no way, shape, or form are even fathom. We can't even fathom marching to God's presence. Okay, God, I got my list here. I got some issues with you. We're going to end up like Loki. You say, well, God's not going to beat us up. I'll tell you what, God's going to discipline us. I've said it before. Herb Hodges says, if you are a Christian and you can continue to sin without God beating the hell out of you, you're not a Christian. If you can stand and accuse God of injustice and God doesn't pick you up like the Hulk did Loki and slam you around a little bit, get some sense in your head, I don't know if you want Listen, this word today is hard. This is a club of guys. God is big. God is strong. God is other. He is not a puny God. He is God over all. Do not try to dictate this relationship. Do not try to make his plans for him. Do not tell him what he can and cannot do. Do not try to force him into your puny mind. He is big. He is great. And he is not like us. You thought I was just like you. So I want you to know the bigness and the perfection of this mighty, awesome, loving, wrathful God. And as you bring your questions to him, which is fine, don't bring them with malice and accusation. Come humbly before a baby in the manger, before a man on the cross, and say, God, please help me. Your perfect ways. And until I see you face to face, I'm not going to know everything, but I do know this you are good. You are perfect. You are noble. You are right in everything that you do. How many times have we said in the back of the book, that is going, as for this God, his way is. Worship him for his wrath. Worship him for his mercy. Worship him for his perfect And be glad that he's bigger than you. Smarter than you. More willing than you. More wrathful than you. Celebrate the greatness of God, church. How big is your God? How sovereign. or take away anything from the Lord. I don't want to imply that I understand it all or I don't. But I do want to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called me out of darkness into His marvelous light. I do want to rid myself and rid us of accusations against you. And God, they come so innocently sometimes, 
slithering like a snake into a house. That purges from any thoughts of harboring any sense that there is injustice in you or that anything that you do is unfair. God, we don't understand it all. Heaven is And we crawl up like children onto your lap and we just say, Daddy, please help us understand. That's good. But no, we never come with our hand on our hip, our finger pointing towards your face, telling you what you can and can't do. Telling you what's right and wrong as if we may. May we look into the mirror of your word and be changed into the likeness of your son from one degree of glory to another. And on that day when we stand with the throne from every tribe, nation, tongue, and language, our song will be salvation belongs to our God. May we start singing that song today. And may we understand the riches of your glory are for us, your plan is for your glory, to direct it toward us that you might receive all the more glory through us. Help us, God, to know when we put our hands over our hands. And trust you. And love you. And you ask what you You just stand and receive the benediction. who was able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory and virtue. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all those people said, Amen. Amen.